but this is a unique Sunday as well, uh, for it is my last Sunday as one of the pastors out the bridge. And how fitting it is that I'm preaching on bearing with one another because you get to bear through the emotions of the day. Um, but I'm going to start with, with the pastoral prayer, oh, which is truly just thanking God for my time here, thanking God for the branch and what this community is. So you guys join me as I pray. Lord God, we praise you that we can sing a song like it is well today. We can sing a song that in the midst of goodbyes, we cling to the truth of the gospel. We cling to the very thing that unites us. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for your faithfulness. Lord God, we praise you for your faithfulness within this community, within this family that I have been blessed with for the last seven years. Lord God, we praise you for your faithfulness in the midst of our many moves, in the midst of our pastoral transitions, and in the midst of a world pandemic. Lord God, you have stayed the same. You have been the glue that has held us together. And Lord God, I thank you for this congregation, for the blessing they've been to me and my family, and for the blessing they have been to one another and this city. Lord, I praise you for our commitment to the word for our commitment to expositional preaching as we desire to walk through your words, Lord, to see what you have to say to us, knowing that your words are the only thing that truly matters. Your words are the only thing that brings life itself, and we cling to that. And Lord God, we pr I praise you for this congregation and the, for the commitment in the midst of transitions. Again, through moving buildings, and through pastoral transitions, Lord, we have stayed committed to one another. We have bared well. And God, I praise you for this congregation that the reality is we live in Corvallis. We live in a transient culture. Yet we have loved well and been faithful to those who have stepped in our midst. Whether that's for a term or a year or many years. Lord, I thank you for the genuine love for one another. For the genuine desire to see growth and gospel fruit and gospel truth. Lord God, we praise you that your church is bigger than one pastor. Your church is bigger than one family. For your church is rooted in the rock of ages. Your church is rooted in your word that is unwavering and unchanging. And your truth is rooted in the true pastor, the chief shepherd, your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord God, I pray over this congregation that they will be ones that cling to your shepherd. That they will be ones that cling to the gospel that day in and day out we go to your word to be refreshed because your word is the living water that nourishes us. It is the food that we need to get through the day. Lord God, may we never lose sight of the love that you have for us, a love that has bonded us together. And Lord, may we cling to the words of Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him that is you, Lord, be the glory and the branch and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever.
the opening ceremonies to the 2021 Tokyo Summer Olympics is this Friday. And we have to admit, there, there's something beautifully unique about the Olympics. For the 16 days of the games, it feels like the whole world comes together. Each country or nation is united in hope and anticipation as their athletes compete on the world stage. As we're daily looking in the paper or on the news to see that medal tracker and how our country is doing. And all of a sudden, we become these professional critics in obscure sports that we knew nothing about, maybe didn't even know existed prior to this Friday, like artistic swimming or dressage that has to do with a horse or rhythmic gymnastics. All of a sudden, we care about the steeplechase, hoping that Emma Coburn doesn't fall into the water and ruin her chances. We watch events like diving and badminton, hoping that for once, America can actually show up and get on the podium. We record every event possible, hoping we can watch it later that night or with friends. We sit on the edge of our seat as Noah Lyles runs the 200 meter, holding our breath every moment until he crosses the finish line. And right now, we're collectively nervous about Team USA and our men's basketball team because we've had a pretty cruddy showing in these preliminary exhibition games. The Olympics are unique because it brings the melting pot that is the United States together. You see, through the games, we find commonality with the person behind us in line at the store, with our next-door neighbor, with the barista that we're ordering our coffee from. It gives us something to talk about, the upcoming events or the outcomes of the events that have transpired. They become centralized events to focus on, discuss, and root for. It's a time in which we actually look past our struggles and our differences to show our nation's pride to the world, eager to be number one. The Olympics bring us together. They uniquely unite us. It unites us in a way that few other events in history do. But the reality is, it's rather short-lived. It's a fleeting picture of what could be. For once the Olympic flame is extinguished during those closing ceremonies, life just seems to go back to normal. We go back to our business, back to doing our own thing, and this unity quickly dissolves. Yet in our text today, we see not a call for national unity, but a call for biblical Christ-centered unity within God's people, the church. We see a picture of unity that isn't simply a pipe dream, but an objective reality already won through the cross of Christ. For a while, the unity centered on the Olympics is temporal. The unity of the church is eternal. And this call for unity has practical implications for our lives. For Christian, we display our unity by bearing with one another. We display our unity by bearing with one another. And we're going to spend our time together in the first six verses of Ephesians 4. Verse 1 and 2, we'll look at the characteristics of bearing. Second half of 2, we'll see what it means to bear. And prep yourself, that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, in those few words. And in section 3, verses 3 through 6, the cause of bearing. So let's read our text this morning. Paul, preaching and speaking to the church in Ephesus, proclaims Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. So an observant reader of Scripture, when we look at the beginning of a section like Ephesians 4, we need to pause when we see that term, therefore, and ask the catchy little question, what is that therefore, therefore? You see, Paul's therefore draws us back to the first three chapters of Ephesians. And we need to remember that, that unlike us in our context in this moment, Paul's original audience would have sat down or gathered together and heard the letter of Ephesians written to them all in one sitting. And so that therefore would flow out of these three chapters, the first half of the letter that was read to them. And this therefore is ultimately a transitionary statement. The beginning of chapter 4 is a structural shift as Paul ultimately moves from the indicative, which is the, the declaration. It's the declaration of theology, the doctrinal matter. And then he moves from four, chapters 4 to 6 to the imperative, which is the commands, how we ought to live, this practical instruction. To paraphrase, in this word, Paul is ultimately saying, in light of everything I have said, in light of everything that you are, do this. Live this way. So therefore, prior to just jumping into our text, it's important to spend a few moments looking at what has Paul been arguing, what has he been laying out to his people for the last three chapters? Paul ultimately wants to emphasize the spiritual blessings Christ, I mean, spiritual blessings that Christians experience because of the gospel. We see in chapter 1, that Christians have been predestined for adoption into the family of God. In verse 7, we've been redeemed. That is, we've been forgiven of our trespasses through the blood of Christ spilled on the cross. In verse 14, we find hope because we have an inheritance that is guaranteed and sealed by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, we see that through Christ, we who were once dead in our trespasses have been made alive in Christ. And we see that the salvation is not based on our works, for we can never work hard enough. No, it is based on the grace of God. We're saved by the gift of God, grace through faith. And therefore, Paul urges us that, that we have nothing to boast in, in ourselves, Brother, the only thing we have to boast in is Christ crucified. And that as Christians, we're not saved to stay in a silo. No, we're saved to be part of a new body, a new people, a new family. In the second half of chapter 2, he shows us that the gospel actually broke down the wall of hostility. It makes many into one. With Christ as the cornerstone, we are being built into the temple of God. Brick by brick, piece by piece, the gospel being the mortar that holds us together. And lastly, in chapter 3, Paul shares the mystery of the gospel declared. For Gentiles which I'm assuming are the overwhelming majority of us in this room, are fellow heirs to the kingdom of God. The Gentiles and Jews are united in Christ. There is no longer Jew and Gentile, there's Christian. And in God's grand design, he established the church to be the one to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. You see, the church has always been God's design to display his glory. So therefore, that one word, therefore, in 4.1, encompasses all of that and even more. 
So when he says, I urge you, in verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, he's saying, walk according to what we know to be true based on what I have said in the first half of my letter. And yet we see with God's gracious calling on our life also comes responsibilities. The calling, though, is rooted in a Christ-centered and Christ-obtained unity. And yet Paul realizes, and it doesn't take us long to realize, that that unity is actually something difficult. That calling is something difficult to live up to. We struggle to live in a worthy manner. We struggle to live out our unity. And that's why central to our ability to live out that unity is to bear with one another. Therefore, Paul begins his practical application section by looking at the characteristics of bearing, the essential character we need to maintain our unity. Living in community is hard. It's really hard work. And living out our God-given identity is a lifelong struggle this side of heaven. Therefore, we need to set our heads and our hearts towards the risen Lord, towards his character. Bearing with one another in love is built on these three blocks. Humility, gentleness, and patience. So what does it mean to be humble? To be gentle. To be patient. Humility. You probably heard it said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. But I would argue humility is first thinking rightly about God. And second, thinking rightly about yourself in light of who God is. To think rightly of God, to think rightly of Christ, is to understand the person and work of Jesus. For we see in Christ the Son of God. He's the one that emptied himself, taking up the form of a servant. And we see in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself to the point of the cross. We even sang about it this morning. He went to the cross for a rebellious people. And understanding Jesus' work on the cross actually humbles the Christian. For humility flows out of a high and accurate view of Christ. And to think humbly of ourselves, to think rightly of ourselves, means to also recognize our own depravity. To recognize our propensity to sin. Our propensity to choose our needs, our wants, our desires above all others. A propensity to hide from God when we've done wrong. And yet to think rightly of ourselves doesn't conclude there, but points to our need for a Savior. To recognize that apart from Christ, apart from his mercy and grace, we are dead in our trespasses. Yet we see humility is not simply this pity party It's not thinking terrible things about you, for that's actually missing the truth of the gospel. No, humility is recognizing that salvation is a gift, a gift that we have been given to receive. And if we're able to truly grasp that, if we're able to see ourselves for who we are, then we're able to actually see the lowliness of self in light of the grandness of Christ. Therefore, we're able to free ourselves from arrogant boasts when we understand the reality of who we are in Christ. We no longer boast in ourselves, but we boast in Christ, the only one worthy of boasting. And gentleness. Gentleness often carries an association, a connotation of meekness. And yet, sadly, I think for many of us, when we think of gentleness, when we think of meekness, we associate it with being soft, being resilient, I mean, reticent or fearful. Yet in actuality, biblical gentleness presupposes 
strength. For we see gentleness in our strong Lord and Savior. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus uniquely invites us to peer into the core of who he is. In a rare moment he shares with his disciples, he shares at the core of his being is the fact that he is gentle and lowly. He says, therefore, all who are heavy laden and burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. The pastor and author, Dane Ortland, um, in his book titled after those verses, Gentle and Lowly, he states, what helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. It is what gets him out of bed in the morning. You see, gentleness is to be there for someone in the midst of the burdens and sorrows of life. It's actually to live in the place of need with others. Here we see gentleness is both strength and tenderness. It is the strong and yet tender embrace of a father that goes to his little girl after she scrapes her knee and picks her up into his warm embrace. Gentleness promotes a desire to help others, to extend empathy and sympathy. And patience. Patience can also be defined as long-suffering, or as we see in Exodus 34, this slow-to-anger characteristic of God. Patience means a willingness to endure with others. And we see as this progression of thought continues, we're seeing that patience in, patience in Paul's understanding naturally flows out of humility and gentleness. For if we humble ourselves and we see our shortcomings, then we're able to be patient with one another in their shortcomings. And if we grasp the reality that our sanctification, this process of being made more like God, is a lifelong process, then we understand we're all on the same journey. Somebody might be a little further ahead, somebody might be a little further behind, but we're all striving to head in the same direction. And therefore, we hold arms with one another. For as Christ has been patient with us, and is continually patient with us day in and day out, he gives us the ability to be patient with one another. Instead of us getting angry about someone's shortcomings, we actually come alongside them and walk the journey together, no matter how long it takes. So Paul lays out these three characteristics, humility, gentleness, and patience. Three characteristics essential for us to effectively bear with one another. And bearing with one another is essential to maintain and display our unity. So what does it mean to bear with one another? And how do we practically do it? The second half of verse 2 states in six words, bearing with one another in love. See, there's a lot packed into those six words. And the first half of verse 2 ultimately leads to that statement. Again, we see this logic of Paul in his discourse. For bearing with one another is living out our humility, gentleness, and patience in our relationships. If you are humble, it's going to lead to gentleness. If you are gentle, it's going to lead to patience. And in this patience, in this long-suffering, it is essential that we bear with one another. Bearing with one another is enduring for the long haul. It's enduring in the midst of strife, 
difficulties and the differences of opinions. In the midst of the good moments and the bad, in the midst of joy and mourning, it's linking arms with your brothers and sisters in Christ and never letting go, regardless of the circumstances. And we see that Paul's not picturing this teeth-grinding, just muscle-through-it experience. No, he says that bearing with one another is rooted, what's those last two words? In love. We do not bear because we must. It's actually a bearing because we want to, because that is what Christians do. The power of the gospel actually compels us to love our brothers and sisters. I mean, think about, think back to last week's message as we started this one another series. Jesus told his followers, love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. Bearing with one another is the love of Christ in action towards your brothers and sisters. To love one another necessitates one another. As scripture proclaims, love bears all things. And bearing with one another is letting love cover a multitude of sins. And the book of Ephesians actually helps us understand what bearing means through some of the usage of imagery that Paul gives us. We'll look at two of them. The family of God and the body of Christ. I mean, think about your own family. Your relationship with your parents, your siblings, your wife, your kids is full of bearing. For your parents, your siblings, your wife, your kids, they're going to make bad decisions. They're going to do things that hurt you, annoy you, confuse you, anger you, potentially break your trust. And yet, in a healthy family, what do we do? We still strive to love one another. We're so willing to often look past their faults and shortcomings, striving to see the best in them, holding on to our family for the long haul. And why? Well, because they're our family. And because we only have one family. That's all we've got. And for many of us, we, we know that our family loves us even if they don't always know how to express it or they express it poorly and in ways that hurt. So warts and all, you make the most of what you have. Bearing is not giving up on them, but buckling up for the bumpy and rocky road that is life. And Christians, if we strive to do that with our earthly family, a family that may or may not be Christian, how much more do we bear with our heavenly family? As Paul proclaims in Ephesians 2, we are members of the household of God. He has united us into the family of God, a family united in and through Jesus Christ, an eternal family bought through the blood. And the bond through his blood is unbreakable. And second, we see this idea flushed out in Paul's body of Christ language. Very similar to this family language, we bear together in love because we're the body of Christ. And last time I checked, we only have one body. Though we have different roles, we recognize as 1 Corinthians 12 says that we are all essential and we all need to have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. So how do we care for a hurt or suffering part of the body? A few weeks ago, I had the lovely privilege of getting all four of my wisdom teeth pulled out of my head. I was even lucky enough to be awake through all of it. And let me tell you, the experience of hearing your teeth popping, your teeth breaking, and then being yanked from your head, 
those sounds stay with you for a while. The first 24 hours of just hearing that sound over and over and over again in my head as I laid there in pain. And as you can guess, a few hours after the procedure, that numbing starts to fade. And that pain starts to set in. So what do you do to care for the hurt part of your body? Well, you nurse it. You take your medication to help dull the pain. You willingly look like a mummy as you have bandages and ice strapped to your face. You protect your mouth by eating soft foods. You use syringes to clean out those gross holes in the back of your mouth. Ultimately, you give it time to heal. I mean, we don't simply say, ah, screw it, my my jaw hurts too bad, I'm just going to get rid of it. No, we endure. Because our jaw isn't something we just simply live without. No, it's it's a part of us. And if you're like me and really like food, it's a very important part of us. I also have to give a quick shout out to my wife, Anna, uh, because she was an exemplar example of uh, bearing with me in love. As the days went by and the pain continued to stay, I became grumpy about my lack of ability to eat food that I wanted to eat. Um, Yet her love for me endured. She bore with me the unbearable. She was patient and gracious with me, and so... Thank you, Anna, for being an example of what it looks like to bear well. You see, both biblical images, family and body, help provide clarity for what it means to bear. And now I want to spend a few moments thinking through what, is, what does this practically look like? Not the what does it mean, but, but how. And... This is no means by a holistic list, but rather I want to give us two principles to hold on to as we think through how we bear. To bear together in love, we should strive to, number one, intentionally know each other. You see, we need to let people know that we see them and actually care for them. To bear well is to push past this surface-level conversation that so easily happens on a daily and weekly basis. And the better we know someone, the better we understand what they do and why they think what they think. To intentionally know someone is to push past the stereotypes and to see that each person is dynamic and diverse. It's striving to see the intricacies and complexities that make up you as an individual. To see what makes them tick. Therefore, practical ways to do this. One of those is even as we gather on Sunday mornings. I encourage and urge you to show up early. To stay late. To go out of your way to meet somebody that you haven't seen before. Or to talk to the person that you haven't talked to in a couple weeks. Outside of Sunday mornings, it means inviting someone over to your house for a meal. Or if you don't feel like your home is accommodating, go out for a meal. Go out for a picnic in one of Corvallis's many parks. Invite someone to grab coffee or drinks. If you have kids, set up a play date. You see, to know each other, we need to intentionally invest in each other's lives. And as relationships build, we'll be brought into the difficulties of one another's lives. Because the reality is everybody has them. And nobody really wants to go through those things alone. As we build intimate relationships with one another, we're actually able to walk alongside and walk alongside well. Bearing with one another means that when the weight of life feels unbearable, you give them that hand to hold. You give them that shoulder to cry on. You give them your back to bear some of that weight. It could be a lost job, 
financial burdens and instability, miscarriage, death, chronic sickness, the loss of hope or mental illness. Bearing in love is showing others, I see you and I truly care for you. And the flip side is that, that we need to actually let each other into our burdens, into our pain and suffering. We need to let people know that there are areas of our life that we actually need help bearing. Oftentimes we think people are intuitive enough to understand what's going on in the core of who we are. Yet very rarely is that actually the case. And if you're here this morning and feeling burdened, it may be your struggle with pornography. It may be a debilitating mental illness, infertility, financial stress, relational strife. Brothers and sisters, let someone in. Within our church circles, it's so easy to just put on your Sunday best. We walk through the door, hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing great. Every single Sunday. Yet internally, we're weeping and hurting. You see, when we do that, we're not only hurting ourselves, we're actually hurting the body of Christ because we're not allowing the church to be the church. It hurts the body of Christ. So as we invite one another into the figurative house that is our life, invite people past the entryway. Rather, open every door to them. Let someone check under your bed. Let someone check into that closet where you just shove everything because company's coming over. See, as Christians, you are never alone. So don't fall prey to that lie, but rather embrace the grace of God to have a community around you. Friends, to bear with one another, we need one another. As we read from Ecclesiastes today, it's, we can't do these things alone. We fail to be the church when we don't invite people into the crevices of our lives. And the church is not a place for shaming or guilt tripping. No, it's a place of healing. It's a place of being restored to the Father. I mean, you maybe heard it said before, the church is not a hospital for sinners. I mean, sorry, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Christians come to the body of Christ for help. And as we saw in Matthew 11, Jesus paints us this picture to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. And friends, you find rest with his people. You find rest in his church. And secondly, we should strive to seek commonality over differences. Because I thought about this, aside from our pride and selfishness, we often fail to bear with one another because we just place our differences way higher than the things we have in common. And if all we see in the other person is what makes us different, it's going to be extremely difficult, arguably impossible, to actually bear with that person. If we allow our differences to be our defining characteristics, we actually cripple God's church, and we cripple our witness. I mean, this practically plays itself out when we intentionally go out of our way to avoid the person that we deem as socially awkward or just difficult within the body of Christ. And the reality is, we are probably that awkward or difficult person to somebody within the body. When we allow differences to be our defining characteristic, we use the generational gap to not engage with college students or our families. Or think of politics over the last year. Within our church, the results of the 2020 presidential election caused some to breathe a sigh of relief and some to hold their breath in fear. 
Some voted for Trump. Some voted for Biden. Some voted for a third party. And arguably, people had legitimate reasons to vote for these three options. Yet within these three options, we also see that there is very differing political agendas. So what does it look like? What does it mean to actually bear with one another in the differences of politics? One of the three topics you're to never talk about. See, too many times during the political season, I had conversations with people voicing their frustrations or confusion over why somebody they know is voting a specific way or why somebody said the thing that they said on social media. And the rabbit trail began. Well, Dave, you know that if if they're voting for so-and-so, they also believe X, Y, and Z. And if they said this on Facebook, then they believe A through Z. We just fill in the blank for them. To which I'd have to ask, well, have, have you actually talked to them about this? Do you actually know why they're voting the specific way they're voting or, or saying the specific things they said? Instead of filling in the blank for them, have you allowed them to fill in the blank for you? Andy Stanley addresses these types of issues in a talk on leadership that's titled Trust Versus Suspicion. And the premise of the talk is this. There's going to come a time in your relationship with others that a gap exists. And that gap could be created for a number of reasons. It could be created because of something they said, something they did, something that you inferred. But ultimately, there's a tension in your relationship with someone else. There's a gap. And we can fill that gap with trust or suspicion. See, when you give them the benefit of the doubt, that's, that's trusting them. That's saying, you know what, I'm going to believe the best in what that person had to say. But the opposite of that is where we're suspicious, where we question, where we go down the rabbit hole. It keeps us just festering, and that wound grows and grows. Filling that gap with trust, that actually promotes us and pushes us towards unity. It actually shows us what it looks like to bear. But if we put suspicion in that gap, I don't see how we're able to actually bear with one another because that gap is getting wider and wider and wider. So therefore, friends, if you're here this morning and you know a gap exists in your relationship with with somebody in this church, I urge you to go to them. If you're not able to fill it with trust, if you're prone to fill it with suspicion, go to them. We need to talk to them about what that gap may be. Yeah, this, this conversation might be difficult. It's probably going to be really hard because you're having to voice things that you often want to hold inside. Confrontation is very few people's favorite things to do. Yet this is the practical way in which we bear. It's the practical way in which we step past our differences to have conversations that matter, that bring us together. For in the midst of gaps, we bear together to build trust and unity not suspicion and division. And within our church, we're full of differences. Different views on politics. Different views on tertiary theological issues. Different favorite worship songs. Life circumstances. Interests and hobbies. Arguably, we actually have more differences numerically and categorically than we do any kind of commonality. But thanks be to God that all of these differences are not our primary defining characteristic. Now, when it comes to the church, when it comes to bearing with one another in love, we're not defined by our differences. We're defined by our commonality. And what ultimately is our commonality rooted in? Our commonality 
our ability and power to bear with one another is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, look around this room. Our commonality doesn't make sense apart from Jesus Christ. We do not have enough worldly things in common to commit to one another like we are striving to do. But our common belief in the gospel trumps all differences. The gospel bonds us in a way no earthly thing ever can. We cannot bear in love apart from Christ. For Christ is love incarnate. Jesus is not only our model, but he's actually the reason we bear. For Jesus showed us humility as he emptied himself and took on flesh. Jesus showed us gentleness as he daily engaged with the broken, sinful, and destitute. Jesus showed us patience as he daily preached the gospel to rebellious people who struggle to understand their need for a savior. And Jesus ultimately bore our griefs and carried our sorrow through the blood of the cross as he was nailed to it. He bore our wickedness, our rebellious nature, our sins on that cross. And he is the substitutionary sacrifice for us. He took the many and made us one. He united us. He established a commonality that breaks any wall of hostility and makes us one. I mean, we are the bride married to Christ. And for what God has joined together, let no man separate. And the beautiful thing is that Christ is, is not only what united us originally, but he's also the only thing that continually unites us today and into eternity. Friends, this is the drum that Paul keeps hitting. Christ is the cause. Christ is the unifier. Because of who we are, as a collective people that are in Christ, we are able to maintain this unity. And verses 3 through 6 reveal this cause of bearing. Verse 3 through 6 reads, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That is ultimately what our bearing is, what we're striving towards. And he says there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We see that our unity, the ground for which we bear with one another, is rooted in the objective reality of what Christ has done. You see, it is outside of ourselves. It's not dependent on us. These verses point not to what we have done, but what he has done. Again, we notice, he says we are to maintain the unity of Christ. And maintaining is done through the bearing. So notice our bearing is not the cause of our unity, rather it's the other way around. It's the Christ one unity that allows us to bear and when we bear with one another, we display the unity we always and forever will have. As Paul continues, we see that the bond of peace is rooted in Christ. For just two chapters earlier, Paul tells us that he, that is Jesus himself, is our peace who made us both one. He is our peace between the Father and us, and he is the peace between brothers and sisters. So Christian, do not lose sight of our oneness. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Christian, this is what binds us together. And all of these realities are true no matter what we do. Thanks be to God.
So our task is to live out this reality. To walk worthily of these truths. For when we do, we display the gospel to the watching world. We display the glory of God. The opening ceremony for the Tokyo Olympics, again, is this Friday, the 23rd. And for 16 days, we as Americans will be unified in heart and purpose to root on Team USA. They'll represent our country and hopefully excel on the world stage. Our nation's mood will rise and fall with the outcome of the the events and that medal tracker. And yet those 16 days will be over before we know it. And we'll be flung back into the messiness of our nation. Once again, we'll see a world full of division, keyboard warriors, and political promises for change that seem ever fleeting. In a world that seems to live in these polarized realms, always pitting one side against the other as enemy, we as the church can and should stand differently. For we don't link our community's identity to a flag or to a medal count. No. We link our community's identity to the risen Lord. A Lord who endured for us through the cross. And a Lord who united us through his blood. A Lord who has both called us to and shown us how to be unified. So may we, the church, display the unity we have in Christ by bearing with one another. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your words through our brother Paul. Lord, we thank you that though this call can feel demanding and overwhelming, we can cling to the truth of the gospel. We can cling to the objective reality of what already has been accomplished by you. Lord God, we thank you for the unity that we have through your son, Jesus Christ, and his blood spilled. And so God, may we be the people who embrace the images of who we are, the family of God and the body of Christ. And God, may we be people who strive to know each other well and strive to focus on our commonality in the gospel over all our differences. To you be all glory, honor, and praise. Amen.